Chuck Faber is the academic dean at Boise Bible College, but he spent his formative years in Japan and lived there until he was a young adult. And Chuck told me that the city streets where he lived were very narrow and very twisty. Some of them were barely a lane or even a lane and a half wide. Because of that, many people preferred to get around town on motorcycles rather than use cars. Well, one particular day, Chuck and some of his friends were driving across town on their motorcycles to run an errand. So Chuck was riding his bike, and he had a buddy sitting on the seat behind him, hanging on like guys often do, putting his arms around the guy's waist. There was a second motorcycle behind them, also riding two up. So these two motorcycles, four guys, are cruising through town, heading to the other side of town. And they reached a part of the city where the road was particularly narrow and particularly twisty, and they had slowed down, navigating their way, and ahead of them was a very narrow hairpin turn, a blind turn. And as they approached that curve, all of a sudden, with no conscious thought, Chuck veered over to the side of the road and stopped his bike. The guy behind him following his lead did exactly the same thing. And as they stopped, around that blind corner ahead of them came a huge speeding semi-truck. And it passed by within inches of them. If they had not pulled over, they probably would have been killed. And as that truck roared by, the guy that's hanging on to Chuck starts yelling at him, How did you know? How did you know? And Chuck said, I, I didn't know. I didn't know that truck was coming. But the Holy Spirit did. In that moment, the Holy Spirit dramatically intervened in Chuck's life. He actually overrode Chuck's conscious thoughts, prompting him to get out of the way, and he did that to spare the lives of four young men. It's an amazing story. And that story highlights something profound and important for us to understand about our God. Our God is sovereign. He is in charge. And yes, it's true that he gives us free will in many areas of life. And yet there are moments when it suits his purposes that he will impose his will on us. And whenever he does so, he does it to bring about something good. Something good for us and good for those around us. That's what Chuck and his friends experienced that day. And that same kind of thing happens to believers in the first century in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Because on that day, the Holy Spirit invades the world. The Spirit imposes His will upon God's people. And He does that to demonstrate His power. And most importantly, he does that to draw people to Jesus. It's a historic, world-changing event. And we find it recorded for us in the book of Acts, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Let's take a look. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, 
all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these all who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. By sending the Holy Spirit into the world on this particular day, God is doing something that's actually kind of ironic because the Jewish celebration of Pentecost is a celebration of the Jewish law. It's a day set aside to honor God giving the Jews religious rules, rules which the people try to follow in their own power in order to be righteous. And then here on this particular day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit invades and God takes the meaning of Pentecost and He turns it upside down. Because from this day forward, the life of faith is to be spirit-driven, not rule-driven. And God's Spirit accomplishes this purpose by imposing His will, sovereignly imposing His will on the followers of Jesus. And He does so, as we see here, in a dramatically disruptive way. There are more than 100 believers gathered in that room to pray. And they don't, they don't feel wind, but they hear a wind. And it's not the sound of a gentle, soothing breeze. It's the sound of a violent wind. Violent. Some of you are old enough to remember the Columbus Day windstorm of 1962 that nailed the Pacific Northwest. There were gusts here in Eugene that reached 86 miles per hour. And if you were here that day, you know what a violent wind sounds like. I lived for many years in Southern California where we experienced these dry, gusty winds called the Santa Ana winds, and gusts regularly would reach 60 to 70 miles per hour. I know what a violent wind sounds like. And that's the sound, this violent sound, and it fills the room where these people are praying. No wind, just sound. Then they see what looks like tongues of fire that hover over each person there. It looks like fire, but nobody burns. And then all of these believers start to speak in foreign languages, languages that they, they don't know, they've not been taught these languages, but they just spontaneously start to speak these languages, and they are the actual languages of the international visitors that are there in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. This is a wild supernatural experience. And how much choice do the followers of Jesus get in all of this? Zero. Zilch. Nada. You see, this is God's decision, not theirs. 
The followers of Jesus get baptized in the Spirit on this day in this way because that's what they need and that's what the world needs. This moment is a powerful reminder that the life of faith requires humility because there are times when we are not in control of events. God is. Because He is sovereign. And so the Holy Spirit invades this room and He turns an orderly prayer meeting into a scene of bedlam. Why does he do this? Because he wants to arouse curiosity among these foreign visitors to Jerusalem. You see, when these people come to Jerusalem for celebrations like Pentecost, they typically speak Greek. That's the one language everybody knows. It's the common language of commerce. That's why the New Testament originally was written in Greek, so people could read it and understand it. When they're they're in Jerusalem, these foreigners are not used to hearing their own languages spoken. And certainly not by a bunch of Galileans. And it's heartwarming for them to hear God being praised in their own language, their own native tongue. And even as it happens, they don't understand how it can be happening. This is new, it's unusual, it's never happened before. So naturally, they want to know what's going on. Now, there's an interesting fact about human nature. When we encounter a situation that we can't easily understand, sometimes we try to explain it away. Or sometimes we even make fun of it. And that's how some people respond. They accuse the believers of being drunk. They've had too much wine. That false accusation needs to be quickly debunked. So Peter, Peter, who's one of the leaders of this small band of Christians, he's going to speak up and explain things. And we read what Peter has to say next in verses 14 to 18. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, think about that, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Peter begins by making it clear that the believers aren't drunk. And it's not apparent from the text, but the fact is on Pentecost, part of the way people commemorate this day is by fasting. So at 9 o'clock in the morning, no one's had anything to eat or drink. Accusing them of being drunk just doesn't hold water. And next, as Peter speaks, we need to remember that he has just been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And he has no idea any of this is about to happen. He just stands up and starts to talk. I think it's an an obvious inference that the Holy Spirit gives him wisdom about what to say. And the Spirit brings to Peter's mind a prophecy from the book of Joel. Peter says that the events that they are witnessing and experiencing right then 
are a fulfillment of Joel's ancient words. According to Joel, on this day of Pentecost, the last days have arrived. So at least in this case, the last days is not a reference to the end of the world. Rather, it's a reference to the beginning of a new era. The arrival of the Holy Spirit launches a new day when the spiritual life for the children of God will be transformed. For example, from this day forward, the presence of God no longer will reside in a temple in Jerusalem. Instead, the presence of God will reside in the followers of Jesus because the Holy Spirit lives in them. Think about that. God moves from a building to people. That's transformative. And because of the presence of the Spirit, God will form a new community of faith called the church. It will be a community of all kinds of people, rich and poor, black and white, Asian and Hispanic. It will be a community of men and women, adults and children, all of whom are filled with the Spirit and who all have a part to play in the life of the church and in God's purpose of building the kingdom of God. Everything that lies ahead for these believers is going to be transformational because it will be new and different. It will be nothing like what these faithful Jews previously have experienced. And if you want to know how radically different the church of Jesus Christ is from how Jewish worship is, visit an Orthodox synagogue sometime. My wife and I did that. It was an eye-opening experience. An Orthodox synagogue where worship is based on the traditional model. Julie and I walked in the door and immediately were separated. We weren't allowed to sit together. Because right down the middle of the synagogue was a wooden fence, a barrier. Women on one side, men on the other. And Julie sat over here with the women who were not allowed to participate in the worship in any way, shape, or form. They couldn't read scripture. They couldn't pray. Most of them didn't even sing along with the music. They were spectators. The men over on this side, some of them got to stand up in front of the congregation, pray and read scripture, and they sang with gusto. And of course, I wasn't allowed to participate. I was a Gentile. As I was sitting there on the back row of the men's side, there was a young boy sitting down on the end of my row, and he wasn't allowed to participate either because he was too young. We need to understand that the invasion of the Holy Spirit puts an end to all of that kind of thing because the Holy Spirit baptizes and fills every follower of Jesus and he equips men and women and sons and daughters and young and old with all kinds of spiritual gifts and every believer can engage in ministry. And in just a few years, We see Peter's words as he quotes this prophecy of Joel. We see them begin to come true. When the Apostle Paul writes one of his letters to the church in Corinth, he describes both men and women leading prayers and exercising the spiritual gift of prophecy during the worship service. That never would have happened in a synagogue. 
It happens in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's why I love it when during our worship we have men or women or young or old read Scripture or offer prayers or, or lead us in singing praise and leading us into the presence of God during worship. The Spirit sets us free for things like that. And he equips men and women in all kinds of ways that we need to encourage and celebrate. And if you are a child or a teenager, you are not too young to be significant. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're filled with the Holy Spirit and He wants to unleash His power in your life. He wants you to discover and use the gifts He's given you. And if you're a senior citizen, you are not too old to be significant. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are filled with the Spirit and He wants His power to be at work in your life until you draw your last breath. No one, no one should sit on the sidelines because we all, by God's grace, have been baptized with the Holy Spirit and He wants to work in us and through us to enrich our life together and to help us, to empower us to make a difference in the community around us. And that is the point of Joel's prophecy. Prophecy that begins to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And that's why Pentecost marks the start of a new age. It's the age of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit who draws people to Jesus so they can be transformed. And so they then can transform the world. As Peter continues to speak here under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he quotes a bit more of Joel's prophecy. And he concludes with this wonderful line that Joel says. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And for Peter, that is a perfect segue. Because then he preaches an impromptu sermon, a sermon for which he has not prepared, which means I'm convinced he was prompted on what to say by the Holy Spirit. But he takes the opportunity now to tell this assembled crowd of Jewish people exactly who the Lord is. The Lord is Jesus. It's Jesus who went to the cross and was crucified as part of God's eternal purpose. Jesus who conquered death and rose from the grave. And Peter knows this is not a fantasy. He knows it's true because he and the other disciples watched Jesus die and they have personally encountered the risen Lord. Peter wants everyone listening to him to know that Jesus is Lord. So the crowd listens as Peter preaches. And then in verses 37 to 41, he summarizes his message, and we see the Spirit's power at work again as he helps spiritually lost people in this crowd be saved from their sins and get connected to Jesus. Look how this wraps up. Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. 
With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. On the very last night of his life, Jesus taught his disciples about the Holy Spirit who would come. And among the things he told them, he said that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit would be to convict people in their conscience so they would recognize their own sinfulness and develop a hunger for God. And that's exactly what happens here. It's because of the convicting power of the Spirit that the people are cut to the heart because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They realize they're separated from God and they want to know how to close that gap. It's really important to notice the question they ask. No one asks, okay, Peter, now based on what you said, what should we believe? No, they ask, what should we do? You see, they know that faith requires action. Unless we act on what we believe, we do not have faith. These people believe, they now want to know how to take a step of faith and get right with God. So Peter invites them to repent. To repent. Repentance is when we acknowledge to God that we're separated from Him as a direct result of our own attitudes and actions. It's when we acknowledge to God that we want to turn around the direction of our life and we want to live differently in the future. Peter says, repent. Then he says, express your sincerity about repentance by taking a step of faith. Submit to baptism. Let God make you new. Now, in our church, we emphasize repentance and baptism as we should. But, you know, sometimes, if we're honest, we kind of gloss over the Holy Spirit part. I think sometimes it's as if we read the passage this way. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Oh, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Because <laughs> we're a little scared by the Spirit. We're a little, made a little uncomfortable by the Spirit. And if we do that, we make a grave mistake because it is the Holy Spirit who makes baptism a spiritual act. When we enter the baptistry by faith, the Spirit responds to that act of faith and He meets us there in the water. He baptizes us and He disrupts and transforms our lives by causing us to die to the old nature, by making us new people and raising us into new life. It is the Spirit who helps us to live by faith and He empowers us to tell others about Jesus and invite them into the kingdom of God. It is the Holy Spirit's power who convicts us, who saves us from our sins. And as we respond in faith, He connects us with Christ. And on this day of Pentecost, because of the Spirit's saving power, some 3,000 people respond. They repent. They are baptized. They receive the gift of the Spirit and they become children of God. What a day. It is a magnificent, disruptive, transformative day. And it's only the start. 
Because Peter says that the promise of the Spirit is for the generations to follow. The Holy Spirit still comes to invade our lives. And yes, sometimes to disrupt our lives. Because that's how he best can help us live as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. This day of Pentecost truly launches a new age for believers. Because on this day, God imposes his will on his people. Yet we need to recognize how rare that actually is. God does not often do that. He does give us free will. And yet, as the Apostle Paul writes in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 19, we can misuse our free will. We can misuse our free will to extinguish the fire of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You see, we we largely have the freedom to ignore the Holy Spirit if we want. I think we need to be honest and admit that we all have a tendency to do that at times because we like to be in control. We want to have orderly lives and we are unsettled by the thought of the Spirit stepping into our lives and causing disruption and asking us to do disorderly things. And so I think our default often is to try to tame the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a picture of that. A few years ago, we were on a family vacation, and we we visited a buffalo ranch in Minnesota. And Alan, the rancher, put us into his pickup truck, and he drove us out onto the range, and we went and parked on this knoll where we could see hundreds and hundreds of buffalo grazing. So we watched them serenely chomp grass for a while. Then Alan said, watch this. And he revved the engine and accelerated that truck and came off the knoll, driving directly at the buffalo. They heard that noise, they saw that truck, and they stampeded. Fortunately, away from us, (laughs) they stampeded. And the sound of those hooves drumming on the ground was like thunder. I mean, we're sitting in a pickup truck, and we could feel it. We could feel the raw power of that herd. And it was awe-inspiring. And it was also just a little bit scary to realize that if that raw power was directed at us, we'd probably be helpless. So Alan just did that really quickly, drove about 20 yards, stopped. We experienced this stampede, and then we sat there, and the herd calmed down. And then the most amazing thing happened. This big bull saw the truck And he broke away from the herd and he started to lope over to the pickup truck. And I started to freak out. Alan said, don't worry, just watch. And this bull came right up to the pickup truck and Alan put down his window. And this bull put his massive head right through the window. And he had this goofy, puppy-like expression on his face and he started to lick Alan's cheek. I thought, what is going on? Well, this bull had been born in the middle of a Minnesota blizzard. His mother had died in childbirth. So Alan brought that bull into his ranch house, put him in a box in the kitchen, 
kept him warm and cozy, fed him from a bottle. And this bull stayed inside until he was big enough and strong enough to live outdoors. He became a pet. And it occurred to me that Alan had reduced the power of that bull by taming him. To a great extent, Alan had taken control of that bull. To a great extent, he had put out the buffalo's fire. And that's what we often do with the Holy Spirit. We prefer the tamed pet version of the Spirit to the raw, sovereign power version of the Spirit. And we want the Spirit tamed so that He fits into our desires and our expectations and our plans and our schedules. And we want the Spirit tamed so He won't disrupt our plans or prompt us to do something that's awkward or unusual or uncomfortable or inconvenient. If we do that, though, if we put out the Spirit's fire, then we're going to lose all of the power and vitality that God has given us, the power and vitality He gives us to live by faith and to represent Jesus well in this world. Oh, we can tame the Spirit. And if we do, our lives may be more orderly. But, oh, we will miss out on the rich purposes of God. So we face a perpetual challenge. We must continually learn to humble ourselves and stop fighting God for control. We need to loosen our grip and yield to the power of the Spirit, recognizing that as we do, there will be times when He steps into our lives in disruptive and transformative ways. And it may be uncomfortable, but we don't need to fear it. Because when the Spirit disrupts things, He always has something better in mind. So how do we respond to what God did on the day of Pentecost? How do we respond to the coming of the Spirit? It depends on where we stand in relationship to God. If you've never taken that initial step of faith, then the invitation offered by Peter is for you. Repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you're at that point, I encourage you to head over to the prayer corner after the service and we'll have church leaders there who would love to answer any questions that you might have and help you experience the transforming power of the Holy Spirit right here, right now, today, before you leave. The reality of this Bible passage can become true in your life. For those of us who are baptized believers, our great challenge is to not quench the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to remember every day that He wants to fire us with spiritual passion. And I pray that we would allow Him to lovingly disrupt our lives, to lovingly break us out of our ruts so we can represent Jesus wisely and represent Jesus well. And so that the power of the Holy Spirit can work through you and work through me to draw more people into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God where we honor the Father because of Jesus the Son. And where we have the great privilege and the great opportunity to live each and every day in the presence and the power 
of the Holy Spirit.